Well, brethren, we come to the second to last, uh, second to last sermon uh, in this series in the Book of Ruth. I don't think you remember because I've, I've titled, I've said to you the title of, of this series uh, right at the start. I haven't been emphasizing it, but this is a, a series, or this book is a book that moves us from uh, famine to fullness, and we we are firmly within the the. The latter part of this uh, travel between uh, from famine to fullness, and we start to see it uh, being uh, shown uh, to us in the text that we read. Um, so, what is the book of Ruth all about? From famine to fullness, but it teaches us so many different doctrines, so many important doctrines of of the faith. It teaches us about faith. Chapter 1, uh, trusting the Lord as Ruth did, um, as she uh, covenanted, as she uh, attached herself to Naomi. It talks to us about grace and favor, as we saw in chapter 2, about the grace and favor of God as represented in his supply uh, for, for Ruth. It speaks to us about blessing, doesn't it? The blessing that we saw in chapter 3. And now in chapter 4 we start to see the, the, the doctrine of redemption really shine forth. This redeeming element is, is all over the, this chapter and fills us with this, um, with this sense of looking for the fulfillment of this redemption. Not only in the life of Ruth but the full, complete redemption that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Each one, each chapter moves forward around the life of Ruth, a Gentile, a Moabitess, but it's meant to show us as well the working of God, not only in that time, but in our own day. And I think, I don't need to persuade you too strongly that God is at work in this book. Although we don't see miracles as such, Although we don't see uh, wonderful uh, feats of deliverance uh, as, as is, um, we see in these 85 verses in this small book that God has been graciously at work in all the events from the gloom and the famine of Moab to the joy and fullness that we now see in Bethlehem. And this reminds us of the sweet reward there is for, for those who trust in the Lord. It is a testimony to the fact that God gives his best and the best to those who leave the choices with him, who trust in him. Last week we saw, didn't we? I'm trying to turn to the book of Ruth as I'm speaking. It's... Men are not great, as they say, at multitasking. Apparently, that's something that the Lord blessed women with, not so much uh, the men. Let me just turn to the book of Ruth. There, there we go. Um, last week, we saw, the, we, we saw the, the arrangements that were made um, uh, for the redemption of Naomi and Ruth. We saw this interaction at the city gate, which was basically the court of those days. This other fellow uh, who's uh, a closer relative, a closer kinsman redeemer to Naomi, 
And we saw how initially he was so happy. Yes, of course, I can add riches in, uh, to my inheritance. I, I'll take it. But then he realized that actually this would harm his inheritance. This would harm his name. This would harm his, his uh, worldly uh, gain. So he backed, backed out. And we saw then we, that this was perhaps because of, of uh, the, the fact that he had, upon marrying uh, Ruth, he would have to, uh, his first son with Ruth would be the descendant of, of the, the deceased. And therefore, when the, he died, part of his inheritance would return back to, to, to Malin's son, to, to the, the son that he would bear first. So he backed down. He, he, he did the sensible thing. Let's be honest. Worldly speaking, he was sensible. Intensely so. So he, he backed down. But he was a selfish individual in doing so. And that's why he remains unnamed in this, in this narrative. It's interesting that he's only known as friend. I told you that literally in the Hebrew, this is kind of calling someone Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Uh, Mr. Fellow, this fellow, this, this person with no name, this mate, maybe mate would be an appropriate way, of, this person who, whose name became virtually uh, or completely uh, lost in the sands of time because he was unwilling to fulfill his responsibility. But then we find, and we pick up where we left off, that Boaz was very happy with this. In fact, you could say that in a sense he was hoping for this to happen. That he was, uh, and that's why he, he kind of gave half the, 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 the deal at, uh, at first, and then he withheld, and when he said yes, just so that everyone knew why he was refusing, uh, he then presented with the second part, and he goes, oh, actually, I don't want it anymore. You redeem it for me. I, don't, I really don't, don't want it. And we saw, and we stopped there, this weird transaction uh, that takes place, or this weird practice that, that takes place of removing a, a sandal from one's feet and giving it to the other. And this was, as it says here, a manner of confirming things in Israel in those days. A manner of attesting uh, uh, things in those days. And you might wonder, why is it? Why is it that this weird tradition took place in Israel? Well, most commentators, they don't agree with this. It's, it's a very foreign uh, thing. Even by the time that the author uh, wrote this book, uh, it was already a, a tradition that had been perhaps superseded, replaced by writing a deed, writing a, uh, writing a deed of ownership of, of what happened. But it might be that the, the sentiment has to do with that, with that, we, that we read in, in Deuteronomy, when it says that everywhere the sole of your foot uh, steps, treads, shall be yours. This may perhaps refer to that, as if the person is saying, well, wherever that, that belonged to me, here we go, it's yours. So when he takes off his sandal and passes it to Boaz, he is saying, I willed the land rights that were rightfully uh, to be mine, 
I yield them to you. In this regard, the gesture is cer certainly, whether rightly, uh, whether this theory is right or wrong, this gesture is a symbol, a symbol of a transfer, a symbol of an agreement, or as the text says, a confirmation of something. So, uh, and the closest kinsman, this Mr. So-and-so, turns to Boaz and says, buy it for yourself. He gives him the, the, the sandal. You can imagine keeping the sandal as a, as a, uh, uh, a proper, property deeds, maybe. I, I, I'm not sure what he did with the sandal later on. He had witnesses, by the way. I'm, I'm not sure if he needed to keep the sandal as, a, as a, a, a property deed. But the irony here is that by seeking to protect his legacy, his future, by seeking to protect his uh, inheritance, this, this friend, this closer relative, this nearer kinsman, he actually loses, doesn't he? He loses the biggest of legacies that he could have ever wished for. He loses a place in God's plan of salvation. Boaz took a different approach, a more self-sacrificial approach. He, he understood that it would be costly, but he was in love. He wanted to marry this virtuous woman. He took no, no issue with the cost. He didn't think, he didn't do the common sense thing uh, of marrying a, a Gentile woman, which would be very frowned upon in, in that society. But he, he laid hold of it. And therefore, his legacy was perpetuated in the pages of Scripture. So you see, one of the things I, I, I want to emphasize from this chapter as we, we, we are drawing things to a close is the emphasis of preserving names. I hope you, you, even if you're not paying close attention as you're reading, even if you're not uh, wrestling with the text as such, that it comes across when you read this that names are very, very much important in the whole of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, especially in Ruth chapter 4. You find that names are at, at the center of the concern here, that his name might not be cut off from among his brethren. That was the concern. The concern was to preserve Elimelech's and Malin's name uh, and their inheritance. The wish uh, that the, 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 the neighbors, the wish that, that the witnesses had to see Boaz's name remembered in Bethlehem. Verse 11, look, look at it. We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah and build the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. May your name be preserved. The similar blessing is that we, it's not the, uh, our main concern this evening, but it is a blessing uh, upon the, the, the son, the Obed. Uh, may his name be famous. Uh, it is... This, there's this ongoing desire to preserve names. And you find that because uh, you get to the end and you just have a bunch of names. You have a list of names. Because this book is uh, not primarily, otherwise you would just have a genealogy. But one of the main points of this book is to furnish uh, King David's uh, family tree to tell the story of King David's family. So, of course, names are important. Of course, names are, are so um, present. So, 
We then come to Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Closer Relative, who refused, who lost his name, and then Boaz, whose name lasted. The one who married Ruth received not only, Boaz who married Ruth received not only a, a virtuous, hard-working, strong woman that could lift 70 or 80 pounds. He also received the greatest inheritance, a legacy. He received a name, a place in God's plan. He was a father or the, the great-grandfather of David, the king. So it, it is important, and I think I mentioned this last week, as, a, as just an aside of instruction, to consider both Boaz and, and the closer relative uh, as they are examples to us. One, an example of trusting the Lord. One, the, an example of, of not thinking in, in worldly, with worldly wisdom. The other, an example of dealing with things in the sensible manner of worldly wisdom. Isn't that how often we behave? Was, what is in it for me? Just as an aside, a lesson that we can learn from, from, from this man. Isn't that often how we behave, brothers and sisters? Was, what is in it for me? If I go and do this, what is, it, what is my inheritance of this? What, what will I gain with it? What notoriety will I have from it? Is it the, a work that people will see and people will, will, will put me up there in, in terms of respect? Or is it a, a work that will uh, be costly when we think of the service that we provide for God? Do we behave like the closer relative and we're more concerned about us, about my inheritance, about my gain? Or are we behaving more like Boaz, thinking of others? When we think about the services in, the, in, in God's church, in this church, uh, with evangelism, with outreach, with, with the other ministries that we have or could have, is what is it that is, is coming first in our estimation? How do we calculate these things? Do we insist in, in using of, of worldly mathematics, however sensible and, 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 and true they are, or are we thinking and and using God's mathematics in all of this. Because, brothers and sisters, let's be honest, Boaz wasn't acting in the, in the most sensible way, worldly speaking. He, wasn't, he, he was saying that two and two does not equal four. But he was in love, and love is blind, and, and love makes us do foolish things, and he did a foolish thing, according to the world. So how is it that we do our calculus when we serve how is it that we decide on these things? I would submit to you that Boaz's attitude is much more commendable for us as Christians. This is not a call, let me caveat this, this is not a call for us to be foolish in the way that, uh, and to be gung-ho, no, but this is a call for us to be more trusting of the Lord, more more giving and able and willing to sacrifice because there is no service 
like that, that the Lord will not be pleased with a service that doesn't involve a cost. Isn't David that says this? I will not offer to the Lord that which is not costly. Are you willing to pay the cost in the service of the Lord or are you just willing to serve the Lord because you want preeminence, because you want a name, because you want an inheritance? Think about it. Boaz is, in that sense, uh, someone who is much more willing to, to pay the price, to suffer the consequences, to trust the Lord for the, for the, for the consequences. You see, I find this very interesting when we're reading through the book of Ruth. The, uh, this closer relative, he says he does not want to marry this woman. He does not want this Ruth the Moabitess. And then when he comes to, to uh, he says, buy it for yourself. I, I, I cannot, I think there is a part of it that it's because uh, um, she's the Moabitess, certainly. And then when you come to, to Boaz's, uh, speaking to the elders and to the witnesses, he says to them, moreover, Ruth, and he emphasizes the Moabitess. Ruth, the one who was, uh, that is sticking out in this land like a sore thumb, the one that is rejected in this land, I'm taking her as my wife. She entered this relationship, he entered this relationship fully knowing that he would lose out. He entered this relationship fully knowing that the first son that he had would take the inheritance, part of the inheritance, that he would inherit the property that he had just paid good money for. That he, that, so it didn't make any sense, fiscally, economically speaking. But brothers and sisters, God operates in a wisdom that is foolishness in the, in the eyes of this world. That is foolishness in, in, in the estimation of this world. Why? Because, and why did Boaz do this? Because he was more concerned about his service to the needy, his service to those who, who and to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord than he was with himself. He put others first. And in doing so, he won a name for himself. He won not only a, 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 a honorable, virtuous woman, but he won a name for himself. In God's sight, Boaz knew he would. And uh, in, in God's sight, Boaz had received his favor. And God's favor was more important to him than anything else, any inheritance or any other thing in this world. So as we noted before in, the, in, the, in this book, uh, we're, we're kind of bringing these threads together now. Uh, as we noted before, when we went through chapter 3, Ruth is this virtuous woman. And by doing so, uh, marrying this virtuous woman, uh, this worthy woman, as the book of Proverbs says, we, we, we see more and more of this as the, the, this, draws to a, this book draws to an end. Yeah, and let's just see uh, uh, in Proverbs 31. If you would turn there, let's turn to Proverbs 31. Let's do a little bit of a, uh, going back and forth in, in, uh, in Scripture. Proverbs 31 
and, uh, and read it with our own eyes. Proverbs 31 speaks to us about this virtuous woman. By the way, although in our script, in our Western uh, translations, the, the book of Ruth and the book of Proverbs are separated by uh, quite a few pages, in the Hebrew Bible, in the way that the Hebrew Bible was organized, the book of, Ru- the book of Proverbs comes straight after uh, the book of Ruth. They are together there. So we see the, a description of the, of the virtuous woman, don't we? We see a description of this woman. According to Ruth chapter 3, verse 10, uh, Ruth was a, a hard worker. Uh, Ruth uh, didn't eat. Look at verse 27 of Proverbs, and I accidentally closed it. Um, look at the verse 27 of Proverbs. Of Proverbs, she waters over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Here's Ruth, one that does not eat the bread of idleness. Her efforts provide food not just for herself, but for her whole family. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, we read, she also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. That's what Ruth did for Naomi. You see, for Ruth and for the woman in, in, uh, in the book of Proverbs, for this virtuous woman uh, in the book of Proverbs, it wasn't about beauty, uh, physical attractiveness. It was about being honorable and, and righteous in the sight of the Lord. Look at verse 23 of Proverbs 31 and see, um, and see what her husband says about Uh, the woman. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Boaz is this man who was uh, respected in the city gate. But what makes this comparison particularly fascinating to me though though is the fact that the woman is described, uh, the woman that that is described in Proverbs 31 is not just merely uh, generically a worthy woman If you look at verse 1, it is a a woman that is worthy of marrying a king. A woman that is worthy of being uh, the wife of a king. And the genealogy that makes Ruth the the ancestor of David shows that worthiness is the fitting reward for her. David comes from this worthy woman, Ruth. And not only David... But Jesus, our Lord, he is a descendant of this worthy woman. Imperfect as she was, unworthy as she, uh, in a sense, as she was as well, because she was a Gentile. Isn't it wonderful that when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, particularly the one in Matthew, we find that Ruth is included, the one who was a Gentile, the one who was not not pure-blooded Jew and pure-blooded blooded Israelite, but not only Ruth, Tamar as well. And Tamar is uh, mentioned here, and we spoke about Tamar before. I'm not going to go there uh, today for the sake of time. But not only Tamar, but another unworthy woman shows up there, Bathsheba, the, the wife of King David. 
and and she she was involved in this in this uh, appalling uh, uh, extramarital relationship. But not only the women in, in Jesus' genealogy were, behaved and were unworthy, even the men were. David, a murderer, you could, you could argue, maybe even in a sense a, a rapist because of his position. You, could, uh, you, you look at the, the, his genealogy and you see uh, in, the, in, in the genealogy of Jesus this man, this uh, idolater, the greatest of, of the kings, of, idolaters kings of, of Judah, the, the most wicked, Manasseh. Manasseh who is one whose sins were so great that from then on the, the Lord had uh, put or took the people into exile. It was a foregone conclusion because of Manasseh. And you think, why Jesus, the most glorious of persons in the, in the Bible, would have such a, a sinful, unwashed, unpure family tree, such a, 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 a soiled family line? And the answer is, when you turn to the book of Matthew, right after he, Matthew gives you this genealogy, you, you understand why. You understand why these, all, uh, this, these people are present there. Because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Or as Jesus himself said it, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to rescue sinners, people like his own ancestors that were sinners, that were the most desperately wicked of, of men and women. He came to save them. He came to save people like us. So when we, he came to seek and save the, the, the lost, he did not come uh, as a, a superhuman, dressed in, 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 in all uh, kind of uh, super clothing, protect, special protective clothing. No, he came naked, defenseless, defenseless, a descendant of sinners, but not having sin himself. It's just so he could identify with us as sinners. But not only in his family tree, Jesus was surrounded by sinners in his whole life, by unworthy people, by, Jew, by, by, by um, tax collectors, by prostitutes, by sinners. He kept a shocking company in his life, and he kept a shocking company in his death. He was flanked as he stood there on the cross, again naked and seemingly defenseless. He, should, he stood there, surrounded by two sinners, one on each side. And you ask, why would God, why would God, the Son incarnate, expose himself to such a humiliating death, to such a, a humiliating life, to such a humiliating family tree? You ask yourself, why would God do such a thing? Why wouldn't he just safe, keep a safe distance, social distancing from, from these, the, these sinners? It's because this is how he, should, he would save sinners. Then by coming alongside them, by 
identifying with them by being made like them, but sinless. He would live the life that could, they couldn't live and die the, die the death that he, they should have died to perform the greatest act of friendship. The great, and that's, that we just sang it, the friend of sinners, the one who is a friend like no other, to perform the greatest uh, act that humanly speaking is foolishness, that, doesn't, uh, that, that, that is taking a risk for, for apparently, uh, if you are speaking humanly, for no profit whatsoever, like Boaz, but by, by paying a costly price for no profit whatsoever, apparently. So that we wouldn't have to endure hell. So that we would be redeemed like Ruth was redeemed. So that we would be welcomed into the family of God like we have been. So that we would have a name, our names written in the, Lamb, in the Lamb's book of life. So that our name would be preserved. He paid the wages of our sin and did it all on the cross. So you see the love of Jesus is greater than the love that Ruth had for Naomi. She was a virtuous woman, make no mistake, unworthy as she was because she was a Gentile. She was a, a, a wonderfully virtuous woman. And the love that she displayed for Naomi is a love that will go down through the ages as one of the greatest demonstrations of love. And yet it pales in comparison to the love of Jesus Christ for us in what he did on that cross he left his place in heaven that were much greener or that were much better than the greener fields of uh, 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 not just the greener fields of Moab but heaven he left the intimate fellowship with the father yes Ruth abandoned her, her family and her gods when she out of love for Naomi gave herself to Naomi but yet our Lord Jesus did so much more. He left the intimate fellowship with the Father for the pain of this fallen world. And Jesus didn't merely risk his reputation for us. He bore being made of no reputation for us. He was despised, rejected by man. The, glory, the, the king of glory was made a man of sorrows for our sins. And at the moment of his greatest pain and he suffered the greatest of rejections, he cried out, God, my father, my father, to God, my father, father, why have, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Jesus, the friend of sinners that we serve. That's the amazing love that he demonstrated. And the result of it, very much like uh, in, in the story of Ruth, is a seed. Not a, not a physical seed, not physical descendants, but a spiritual seed that were raised from the dead. 
He has been given a name that is above every name. Although physic, uh, although uh, humanly speaking, he what he did was, uh, and the, uh, that's what the Pharisees and the Romans thought that by putting him to death, they were finally putting the, his case to rest. His name would be forgotten in no time. Wasn't that what the uh, what the the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin were saying to the apostles in the Book of Acts? Speak no more of his name. We don't want his name to be, to be uh, uh, divulged. We don't want his name to, go, to be promoted. And yet, because of what he did, God gave him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on earth and in heaven. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. History will never confuse him with a nameless uh, friend, Mr. So-and-so that we have in Ruth chapter 4. But he also received a family, a people for himself, a people that stretches the continents, that is not constrained to a single ethnicity, a single uh, people group. It's made of Jew and Gentile, of, uh, of, of Israelite and barbarian and, and Greeks and, and English and Portuguese and all kinds of other religious uh, nations under the sun, a people of every tri tribe, tongue, and nation. Though he had no physical offspring of his own like Boaz, uh, the end result of his suffering and death was a numerous, greater than the, 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 the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky of spiritual offspring. He is king. He is not only just the king. He is not just the king of Israel. He is the king of kings. He is the king of the nations. He is the king whose people are from the north, the south, the east, and the west, redeemed by his blood, destined to his, for his glory. So, brothers and sisters, if you know this Lord today, rejoice, because you're a part, just like Boaz, of this great story, of this great, God, uh, this great plan, of this great... Uh, arc of, of, of history that is the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice because you are a part of it. That like Naomi, you might, I've been wanting to say this in, in one of the sermons up until now, and I think this is perhaps the appropriate part and we'll finish. Uh, you might, brothers and sisters, you might be experiencing uh, something of the movement, the stages that, that Naomi is. Uh, in one place or the other, you are going to find something akin to what you're going through at the moment. Perhaps you are in Ruth chapter 1 in your life at this moment. You're feeling in, the, in, the, in this heart-wrenching uh, chastening of God. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart because behind the frowning providence, God hides a smiling face and you will yet see and rejoice and praise the Lord, your maker. Maybe you're finding yourself returning a little bit, turning back, returning to the promised land, but still it doesn't feel like fullness. You're still, everything seems, although there is a, something of a, a glimmer, there is, there is nothing there. Rejoice. 
God is still at work. And you will yet find that when you look back through the, through the, to the road that you've gone through, all those rocks that were keeping or that were uh, threatening to make you stumble, they were the rocks that kept you up. And you will be able to say, as any Christian, and perhaps that's where we'll finish, as any Christian, as anyone who is a servant of the Lord, a son of, or a daughter of God, you will be able to say, and that's perhaps the most fitting uh, way or thing that could be said of each and every one of us who are children of God when we get to the grave until now, as we look this, this morning, until now. God was my help. God was my helper. God was with me. And unto him who was able, not who is, because then, but unto him who was able to keep me from stumbling, be glory forever. Because that's what God is doing for each and every one of his children, keeping us from stumbling, being gracious to us, Providing out of the abundant storehouses and treasure houses of his glory to fill our emptiness with his fullness. He continues to do so. But let us cling to Christ. Let us cling to, the, to our Savior, to our Redeemer. Amen.